in the horror genre. I'm your host, Nicole, and it's time to share another dark tale. Welcome back, friends. It's time once again for another Women in Horror Month episode. Um, As always, this episode holds a special place in my heart because while I'm always paying attention to what women are doing in the genre, this time gives us an excuse to really highlight and celebrate our sisters in horror. I haven't always fit well into large groups of women. Um, I was never part of the big, shiny, popular group in school, and I've often found myself in a position where I feel like maybe just a little bit of an outsider in your stereotypical girl groups. Um, However, I have largely found women, and really everybody, that I've met in the horror community to be kindred spirits. And I think maybe that's because we're all just a little bit weird, and we recognize and appreciate that weirdness in each other. So I always have a guest on for Women in Horror Month, and I want to just give a quick little shout out to um, past guests, Nat and Sunny, who are very good friends of the pod. But this year, I have a new co-host. Jacqueline from A Cut Above Horror Podcast is joining me today, and I am very, very happy to have her input for this episode. Welcome, Jacqueline. Thanks so much. I'm so excited to be guest hosting with you today. So um, I just talked a little bit about the horror community, and I've been pretty active in the horror community for, I don't know, maybe a decade. Time is weird once you get to your 30s. Um, But in the past couple of years, I've gotten to be close with the guys from the Straight Chilling podcast. I've been on their show a few times. You guys know that. If you've been listening, you've heard. But they have a Slack channel where there's just like a little group of us that chat throughout the day about horror and whatnot. And um, at first, there weren't a lot of women on there. There were maybe like two of us or something. And over time, we've gotten more and more ladies on there. And um, Jacqueline is one of the lovely ladies that I met through there. And uh, it's been really great to see uh, more more women show up in that space. So Jacqueline, um, why don't you talk about your podcast and uh, we're gonna we're gonna kind of talk about your background in horror. Sure, sure. Thanks so much. Um, yeah, I am one of three co-hosts on a Cut Above Horror Review podcast. My other co-hosts are a couple of fellas named John and Hyderberg, and they are a couple of guys that I met through the Slack channel as well. So sort of an incestuous little community there, but um, <laughs> they they invited me to come aboard with them and join their podcast about. I would say nine months ago, and John had previously had a different horror podcast that is now defunct, and so this was kind of his new brain baby, and so he he got us on board, and the three of us have been recording weekly podcasts for, like I said, about nine months now, and it's a lot of fun. We're sort of getting to know each other through this uh, dynamic and getting to know each other through our love of horror. And uh, yeah, you can find us on Spotify, Apple Music, Amazon, pretty much anywhere you get podcasts. So that's that's been a lot of fun, um, a, a nice endeavor for me. 
Yeah. And um, how long have you been a horror fan? I mean, the short answer is pretty much as long as I can remember. Um, I think I was always attracted to anything macabre. But the problem was that my parents were very strict when I was a child and didn't let me watch anything that was dark or scary. But they didn't really police my reading. And I was always a big bookworm. And so I think you can relate to this as well. But the first thing that I think was really a major turning point for me in terms of my horror fandom was reading the scary stories to tell in the dark books did you grow up with those as well oh yeah yeah my grandma bought me those and Mm -hmm. I loved them yeah that was those were a really big deal for me that was like my first exposure to real horror and I know those are meant for children but I still consider them real horror and those have really stuck with me and sort of influenced my taste in horror a lot over the years and then my mom finally let me kind of watch well Going back, I, then I read the Fear Street books by R.L. Stein mm-hmm, mm-hmm. in middle school. And then at age 12, I started reading Stephen King. And of course, that was a game changer. Uh, so that kind of was my gateway uh, into horror. And then around age 13, my mom let me start watching horror movies. And my first one was Carrie. Oh, so, that's a good first one, I think. <clears throat> I think so, too. And that kind of remains fixed in my mind as kind of an untouchable fixture and has really just um, impacted how I look at horror, what I seek out in horror, what I like and don't like in horror. It's just really like a major cornerstone for me. So uh, I have kind of a two-part question about women here. Why do you think women are drawn to horror and what unique attributes do you think women bring to horror? Well, I think, I think women are drawn to horror for a lot of reasons, many of which are the same reasons that men are drawn to horror. I mean, I think women enjoy a thrilling experience, uh, you know, the, something that's fun and, and scary, but safe, um, like a roller coaster. I think that women enjoy that just as much as men do. I think we enjoy just like men getting to see inner anxieties represented on a screen or a page and then vanquished as sort of a th- cathartic experience. I think we enjoy seeing taboo topics explored within a narrative On the other hand, I do think that women sometimes experience horror differently from men. For example, I think that sadly, we become very attuned to external threats from an early age and sort of taught to protect ourselves and made aware of our physical vulnerabilities in a way that men often aren't. And so I think we can have a little bit more of that cathartic release of anxiety with these films and stories because we relate to those feelings of danger more. So I think that's kind of a unique experience that women have. I also think just pure and simple women get tired of the prim and proper stereotype. Yeah. It's like sort of unexpected, I think, to many people for women to be really into horror. I think it's seen as like a little bit deviant and transgressive for a woman to be really into horror. Even my husband, when we first met and he learned how into it I was and how enthusiastic and how much of a part of my life the horror genre is, I think he really thought I was an outlier until he got to know me better. And I was telling him about different friends and acquaintances. I told him about your podcast and he's like, another one. (laughs) I think it's still seen as kind of fringy. And I think that's a little, I think that gets old that we're like, look, just because we're women, we're not like delicate flowers. I mean, we can enjoy gruesome and brutal things, you know, we can, we can receive that and and really be okay. It's not going to like destroy our psyches. (laughs) And there are statistics that, um, that basically it's half and half horror fans are pretty much half and half. 
Honestly, that doesn't surprise me. I mean, you go to horror conventions and I feel like mm-hmm. you see just as many women as men at these things. It's really not a fringy thing for a woman to be a horror fan. I, I just really don't think so. Mm-hmm. I also think that horror could be, maybe this is just me, but I think that horror can be an interesting channel for um, sort of exercising rage. <laughs> um, I'll, I'll explain briefly. I think that, for instance, men historically grow up being discouraged from expressing emotions except for anger. I feel like that's the socially acceptable emotion for men to have. And I think it's the inverse for women. It's socially acceptable for women to express emotions. It's sort of expected and acceptable, but not anger. That's like unfeminine and unseemly. And so I think if you are a female who grows up feeling that way or having those influences, I think that you accumulate a lot of unhealthy anger. And I think that horror can be a good outlet for that, sort of a cathartic experience of like exercising the demon. And uh, I feel like I just can't be alone in that. It's sort of uh, satisfying to see dark things and experience and live in those dark things for a little while. And, um, and even just like watching violence on a screen or reading about it on a page, I think it can be sort of a like safe outlet. That makes me think of the, uh, the good for her meme that's come out, like the, the, oh, the yeah. good, good for her subgenre of a film, right? I love it. I love that. <laughs> but that's usually, that seems like that's usually a woman like getting, yeah, getting out her rage or taking revenge or something. That's, that's the good for her sub- subgenre. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's time to dive into to the meat today. So... This year, uh, we're going to be talking about the most influential women in horror. And this is obviously a a huge topic. Um, There is no way that we can possibly cover everything in this one episode, Um, nor are we claiming to be the ultimate authority. Like, this is not a definitive list. Uh, We approach this from both a historical and a personal perspective. So the women we're covering today... Uh, They're important to us, but they're really just few of the many who have made the horror genre what it is today. So I am going to encourage listeners out there to use this episode as a jumping off point to dive in and explore what others have to say about this topic and also just to learn about the women who have played a crucial role in creating the art that you love. And also, uh, one interesting thing that we're doing is we're not going to restrict this topic to just film today. We're going to be talking about actors, characters, producers, directors, but we're also going to be talking about female authors and even sprinkling some podcasters in there. Um, Because I believe that all these mediums, especially in today's culture, they all influence each other. And I think together as a whole, they're going to continue to shape the genre going forward. Okay, so first up, we are going to talk about authors. So Jacqueline, what authors did you want to discuss today? The authors that I chose that I really wanted to talk about were Shirley Jackson and Daphne du Maurier. But I don't know if maybe you want to go first. I know one of your choices is chronologically earlier than both of those. So maybe it would make sense. Sure. So I also wanted to talk about Shirley Jackson. We both listed that one. (laughs) And then uh, Mary Shelley. Mary Shelley wrote Frankenstein, if you didn't know. She may not be the first woman that ever wrote a horror novel or a horror story, but she's probably the first woman that wrote a big, massive, important one. And um, 
is a really amazing thing is that she wrote it when she was 19 in a contest with other like established male writers. And I will not recount that tale here. It's pretty famous. You can look it up. Um, but that's just pretty amazing to me that A, she was in the room to do this and B, that she was so young and like clearly fearless. You know, Frankenstein is important. Well, it's an important horror novel, but also it's super important because Frankenstein is one of the original universal horror monsters. And of course, uh, universal horror kicked off the great legacy of horror and Frankenstein was a cornerstone of that. Um, if it wasn't for universal horror, I mean, the genre probably wouldn't look like it does today. And if it wasn't for Frankenstein, universal horror would not be what it was. So with just that one little story, she is really like a pioneer of the genre. Definitely. I mean, the, I think the impact that she's had on the genre is just immeasurable. I mean, I, I struggle to even imagine what the horror landscape would look like without Frankenstein. Yeah. Did you read that in high school for the for the first time? Um, you know, I have to say, I don't think I have ever actually read the whole novel. Oh, both Frankenstein and Dracula, I have read parts of, but never the whole thing. I, I think Frankenstein is more readable than Dracula. So I, I would recommend that to go to the top of the list. Yeah, I need to. need to put it on top of the stack. <laughs> oh, yeah. Okay, so tell me a little bit about Daphne du Maurier, because I don't really know a lot about her. So this is kind of one of the interesting things about Daphne du Maurier, is I feel like she has had... A, a significant impact on horror, but most people don't know about her because most of her work is basically known for having been adapted into films. And so she wrote the novel Rebecca, which was adapted into a Hitchcock film. And there's also an upcoming Netflix, or maybe it's already here, a Netflix film um, adapting that novel. She also wrote the short story, The Birds, which of course was turned into a Hitchcock novel. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm sorry, a Hitchcock film. She wrote Jamaica Inn, which was turned into a Hitchcock film. And she also wrote Don't Look Now. Oh, okay. Which became the film by Nicholas Rogue in the 70s, starring Donald Sutherland and Julie Christie. So I think people are familiar with her work, but only through the films. And she does she's not as as known. Um, but her writing was mostly like in the around the 30s, I would say. And so this is kind of the, you know, the earlier part of the 20th century, not really in our modern times yet. But uh, she won like a National Book Award for Rebecca. Rebecca, if, if you're not familiar with the story, it's, it's about a young woman who marries this widower and moves into his, you know, beautiful but gothic mansion. And so what follows is some pretty interesting like gothic stuff where there's paranoia and is this person really who they say they are you know mistaken identities and there's a creepy housekeeper is she malevolent or is she just odd you know but innocent unclear until you sort of start unraveling things at the end of the at the end of the story it's an interesting story that has themes where the ghosts aren't really ghosts the ghosts that she thinks she's experiencing are really just history that already took place so it's it, it kind of has the same DNA as, say, like Jane Eyre, um, if you're familiar with Jane Eyre, which is considered like a classic novel, but has gothic elements to it as well. And you can draw some through lines there. But I feel like that is really kind of her crown jewel and leads sort of into some later authors that, that we'll talk about. 
You want to go ahead and talk about Shirley Jackson? You want to kick us off? Yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah. yeah I'll get started. I think we both have a lot to say about yeah. her. So, uh, so Shirley Jackson, I think she's probably best known for two works, The Lottery, which is a short story, and The Haunting of Hill House, which has had three screen adaptations by now and is... I think what's interesting about The Haunting of Hill House, well, there are many things, mm-hmm. but one of the significant things is that I feel like that novel really brought the haunted house story into modern times in the middle of the 20th century. So it was written in 1959. I think haunted houses have always fascinated us, and it's a trope that continues over centuries, right? And it's kind of this this next point that I was mentioning with Daphne du Maurier, where you can start with those early 1700s Gothic novels, like The Castle of Otranto. You can move to The Fall of the House of Usher from Poe onto um, The Turn of the Screw and Daphne du Maurier. And then there you are in the 20th century with it, but it's evolved. And I think one of the great things about this novel is that it's not just a haunted house story. It's like half haunted house, but also half diseased psychology. Mm -hmm. And I think that gives it a more modern take. I would even venture to say that maybe without that, without that novel and that confluence between the supernatural and the psychological, maybe we wouldn't have stories like The Shining. And with this inner psychology of the main character of Eleanor, who's really complex, this might be a stretch also, but maybe we wouldn't even have a character like Carrie White. So. Yeah. Well, it's interesting that you mentioned that because um, I'm pretty sure in the, the beginning of The Shining. Well, yeah. So two things. Stephen King mentions Shirley Jackson. And then also, I believe there's a quote from Hill House, Haunting of Hill House in The Shining. Because you know how he puts like quotes from other authors? Yeah. yeah. And I... I could be wrong about this. I should have. I didn't think about this until just now, or I would have already grabbed a book. But I'm I'm pretty sure the line about like whatever walked there walked alone is somewhere yes. in The Shining, and he's gone on record as you know being a big admirer of hers. So I definitely think that she was influential in that way. And I had read The Haunting of Hill House, but it had been a very long time. I hadn't read it probably since I was in college, and so I read it again like a couple months ago. And reading it older. It hit me totally differently. Like, I found myself identifying with Eleanor in a lot of ways. Like, not so much later when she's, you know, kind of losing it in the house. (laughs) But earlier on when she's talking about, like, finding herself and going on an adventure and not not exactly sure where she fits and all this. I was like, oh, I really recognize some of these things. And um, for it to be so relevant now, I feel like this must have been just a breath of fresh air in the 50s, the late 50s, you know. Absolutely. And I think that's that's really a hallmark of Shirley Jackson's work kind of overall is that she writes about the mid 20th century woman's sort of um, the horror of being limited in your control over your own life. And so I think that this, as you said, was a breath of fresh air. It was. It must have been almost startling for women in that time period to see themselves reflected in this work. And not just this novel, but many of her stories as well. Yeah. And uh, I also, after I read the book, I went and watched the original The Haunting from, I guess that was from the 60s. Uh, I don't know if I had ever seen that whole movie. If I had, I didn't remember it very well. And spoiler alert, I mean, we're going to be spoiling lots of things today. So just, you know pause if you don't want spoilers, but I had forgotten that the doctor's wife pops up a couple times and scares Eleanor and that that's what caused her to kind of like 
really go over the edge and then that's what caused her to like crash into the tree at the end and i thought well that's different from the book and it's different from every other adaptation but i thought that was a really smart choice and that was a really smart way to have a practical thing kind of push her over the edge since so much of the book is in her head and that's always harder to show on screen and uh, i really appreciated how that version of it was really successful even though it was completely different from the novel and then it was completely different from like mike flanagan's approach now i will say so i love the 60s version and i love mike flanagan's adaptation the 1999 version of The Haunting is universally panned. People hate it. <laughs> I it's, it's a guilty pleasure film for me. It came out when I was 15. I was I loved horror, but I mean, I wasn't into like anything hardcore, of course, when I was that young. So I went to see everything that came out in the movies. And like The Haunting and The Mummy came out the same year. And those were both a blast for me personally. So even though, sure, the CG is really bad, the cast is fun, the house is gorgeous. I mean, I think there's a lot to love there. So I'm just going to wave the flag for The Haunting 99. (laughs) Yeah, I'm actually with you. I don't know that I feel as enthusiastic about you, but I definitely don't hate it. And I think that it's it sort of has an unfair, an unfairly bad reputation. Um, I've only seen it once and it was not when it first came out, it was maybe 10 years ago, but I enjoyed it as a, as a fun ride. So I, I don't hate it and I take it for what it is and the time period that it came out of in terms of the technical effects. But um, I I think it's a fun one. I I don't hate it. I wouldn't, I wouldn't uh, discourage anybody from watching it. I think it's also a fun one. You know, if you've got like young like kids or preteens or something that are into spooky stuff but it's not they're not ready for like gore and all of that show them the haunting they'll have a good time you know yeah it's not going to traumatize them it's, yeah. it's safe enough yeah yeah do you do you have do you have anything else you want to say about mike flanagan's adaptation before we talk about the lottery i don't um because i watched that series after the birth of my second child and i was um I was like breastfeeding around the clock and sort of watching it in between away like short naps. And so my brain was a little bit muddled and doesn't recall the, <laughs> the ins and outs of that as clearly as I wish I did. Well, so. you definitely have to revisit it because <laughs> it's brilliant. I mean, there's nothing I can say about it that other people haven't said, but I don't know. It's probably going to end up being like one of my favorite horror stories of this decade. I'm going to say mm-hmm. it's just really good. Like I yeah. said, I got nothing new to add that conversation. Plus, I've already talked about it a lot. But um, <laughs> so let's talk about the lottery a little bit before we before we move on. The lottery to me, I remember I don't remember what grade I was in when I was reading it, but I remember reading it. And I think basically every kid in the American school system is traumatized by this story. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you get uh, you get introduced to horror whether you want to or not. And the lottery just does it because you think you're you're reading this quaint little dusty short story and then you get to the end and it's like, oh, my goodness, I'm, re- I'm reading this in school. What is this? So I feel like uh, that's one of the reasons why I think Shirley Jackson is a huge influence, not only on horror, but just on society, because most people remember reading this story in school. So what's funny is I didn't actually read that in high school. I was not exposed to it at that time. 
the first time I read the story was when I was teaching it in high school. Oh, that's great. Yeah. And so the other, the other teachers on the grade level that I was teaching, they're like, oh, let's do the lottery next with our kids. And I was like, oh, good. I've heard about this story, but I've never read it. So I'm, I'm excited to get into it. And then I was like, oh, oh, so that's what this is. And it was a fun experience to teach that to my 10th graders because we read it together in class. I didn't nice. assign it for homework. We read it together. And the emotional reaction of these teenagers <laughs> was so much fun for me to witness. Uh, I think they felt almost a little bit betrayed by me. Yes. <laughs> uh, like, why did you, why are we reading this? This is not what I thought this was going to be. And it was sort of a, a little bit of ghoulish delight on my part to get to observe that, that uh, awakening in a way. I love that. I love it. Um, so before we leave the world of authors, there's, there's one more person I want to mention, and this is kind of adjacent to the the main conversation but i want to mention tabitha king uh tabitha king is the wife of stephen king and as we know stephen king is arguably the most important figure in horror in our lifetime and basically if you don't know without tabitha king there might not be a stephen king she they met in college they fell in love and she has basically been an influence on his writing from the beginning She's always been super supportive. Whenever he was writing Carrie, he was really frustrated and he was discouraged and he like literally threw it in the trash. And Tabby pulled it out. She read it, pulled it out. And she was like, you know, you've got something here. I think this is good. You need to keep working on it. And so in the, uh, the little dedication at the beginning of Carrie, he wrote, this is for Tabby who got me into it and then bailed me out of it, which I think is super cute. In On Writing, which is a fantastic book that everyone should read, um, he just he talks about how she's the first one who reads all his novels and is probably his most important like, critic or editor in the early phase. Um, like, basically, if a story is good enough for Tabby, then it goes on. And if it's not, then maybe it has to go in a drawer and sit for a while. And I think that's just I think that's just fantastic um, that she is such a pillar for him. And um, she's also an author. I have not read any of her books. I will get to it someday. Maybe it needs to be Frankenstein and then a Tabitha King novel behind it. But um, I will uh, I will link some of her info in the show notes. So that if you guys are interested in checking out uh, Tabitha King, you'll you'll know where to go. But I just had a shout out to Tabby. I think it's a great shout out. And I think she probably doesn't get enough credit, just generally speaking, for her role in Stephen King's career. And I think that's a really lovely connection that they have between them, mm -hmm. that she's also a writer and that she is his constant reader, you know, his yes. personal constant reader and responsible for the rest of the world getting some of the stories from him that we've gotten, which we might not have otherwise, um, but almost as like his filter. And yeah, I, I actually haven't read any of her novels either. I feel like a little bit delinquent, but... <laughs> Yeah, I'll put that near the top of my list, too. Silence lay steadily against the wood and stone of Hill House. And whatever walked there, walked alone. Okay, so let's move on to our next category, which is going to be actors. 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 <laughs> In a theater. <laughs> so who is, uh, who is on your actor list? The first person that I thought of right away was Jamie Lee Curtis. Um, I think that when you think of the trope of a scream queen, 
I, I don't know who could possibly pop up in your imagination more quickly than Jamie Lee Curtis. Mm-hmm. Um, she has really embraced the horror genre and like been loyal to it, I think. And especially like in the 80s, she's also continued and, and sort of revived some of that in, in recent years. But I, to me, she's not the first Scream Queen, but I think she's arguably the most iconic. I mean, she's been in the original Halloween, Halloween 2, she did voice work in Halloween 3, mm-hmm. Halloween H2O, Halloween Resurrection, mm-hmm. Halloween 2018, Halloween Kills. She's going to be in, in Halloween Ends. She's really been loyal to this character of Laurie Strode, even when things have been happening in the franchise that just aren't aren't good storytelling-wise. Yeah. But, yeah. but she's really stuck with it. And I, I think that that's admirable and appreciated by fans, especially when there are other people who have sort of started their career in horror, but then later disavowed it and, you know, just kind of used it as, I think they see it as maybe like a cheap, easy stepping stone. I'm looking at you, Karen Black, but. (laughs) Yeah. Well, and Jamie Lee Curtis, I mean, she went on from horror and did, uh, did other things and was an accomplished Mm -hmm. actress and respected actress. And so, yeah, the fact that she, she didn't just, you know, throw horror under the bus as like a stepping stone, I think says a lot about her and, um, you know, love it or hate it, H2O, she was a big factor in bringing that back. Like, I don't think H2O would have existed if she had not kind of signed on. Um, I don't think so either. Yeah, and there's a little bit of muddiness with that where um, I've read that, you know, she thought she was signing on for like, okay, I'm going to come back and do this character one more time and it's going to be a definitive end. And then they sort of like roped her into resurrection like it was in her contract, but it wasn't clear. Mm -hmm. That muddies Mm -hmm. the waters a little bit. But but I uh, that's that's one of the reasons why I do like H2O is because I feel like. You know, Jamie Lee is back and she's loving it and she's really living that role of Lori again. And um, and yeah, yeah, so so I definitely definitely respect her because she did not have to to come back and do it. And she did. Yeah. And, and then even several years later to do 2018 and this kind of new trilogy that's that's been happening. So I respect that. And as a fan, I really appreciate that. And of course, I mean, she starred in The Fog and Prom Night and Terror Train and mm-hmm. Scream Queens. And I mean, there's just so much. So um, and I just want to clarify my comment about Karen Black. You know, we know her from um, Burnt Offerings. We know her from Trilogy of Terror. Mm-hmm. She was in uh, House of a Thousand Corpses from Rob Zombie. Oh, uh, I didn't know that. Yeah, she's the matriarch of the murderous family in, in House of a Thousand Corpses. But before her death, I believe she gave an interview. I don't know how long this was before her death, but she was giving an interview of some sort and somebody asked her about her participation in horror movies. And she said something along the lines of, oh, I've never been in horror movies. And she tried to sort of play them off as like, oh, I've done some like suspense films or thrillers. Oh, she's one of those. She was reluctant to embrace the label of horror Mm -hmm. and that left a bad taste in my mouth. And, you know, God rest her soul. But um, that that's not nice for a fan to hear. No, no. But also, I guess maybe like, I don't know, it was a different time. I know there was a time when horror was basically like akin to porn. Like if you said you were doing horror, you might as well say you're doing an adult film, you know. So I don't know, yeah. maybe maybe she uh, maybe she didn't realize that like some of the stain is is off of it. You know, it's OK. You can <laughs> yeah. just say it. You can just call it horror. It's fine. You know, <laughs> I'll I'll go with that train of with that uh, mode of thought and yeah. uh, offer her a little grace there. <laughs> Um, okay, so who who else is on your actor list? I definitely want to mention D. Wallace. Ah, yes. uh, 
I, I love her so much and I feel like she doesn't get talked about quite enough. Uh, I think she's another one that has really consistently worked in horror and other things as well, but I think a lot of her notable roles have been in horror. But she's a hardworking actress. If you look on IMDb, she's got 263 acting credits and a lot of them are iconic horror movies. She was in The Hills Have Eyes. She was in The Howling. She was the mom in Cujo. Mm -hmm. She was in Critters, The Frighteners. I first came to know her as the mom in E.T., which I think is probably the way a lot of children start to get to know her a little bit. And so kind of a funny thing happened in my psychology with that is that because of that role in E.T., I sort of always code her as like a mother figure yeah. in whatever I'm watching her in. And so in a weird way, she kind of makes me feel like safe and protected because <laughs> she's like, oh. it's like mom's here, you know. And then I think Rob Zombie actually kind of sort of brought her back into the horror fold in his adaptation of Halloween. And then she also appeared in The Haunted World of El Superbisto and Lords of Salem and Three from Hell. And she's kind of like, revisited the the horror aspect of her career and i just think she's she's a great actress she like jamie lee curtis she embraces the genre Mm -hmm. and is loyal to fan and i think appreciates her fans so i just i really just enjoy watching her she's sort of a constant yeah and she's one of those two that uh you'll find her on the horror convention circuit and um i've never met her but i've just i've heard nothing but good things about her and you know you go to these horror conventions And it's usually pretty clear who is there just like trying to pay the bills and who actually cares to be there. And um, she seems like one of the ones that is having a good time. I was at one horror convention where um, I was at like the VIP party or whatever later. And um, uh, there's a story there. I did like the logo and the graphic design. And so I got VIP tickets for free. It was a little bit of a mess, to be honest. But the weekend was great. (laughs) Regardless of the mess, the weekend was great. And so this party that I was at, she was there and she was like dancing around with everybody and just like having a good time, being everybody's fun mom, I guess. That's what she was doing. So get it, girl. (laughs) So uh, that's kind of a good segue into one of the people I want to talk about, um, another kind of 80s staple, and that is Barbara Crampton. And I don't think I grew up with Barbara Crampton. Like, I didn't know who she was growing up. She was in a bunch of stuff that I didn't really watch. So she was in Reanimator, um, Chopping Mall, Castle Freak. That was kind of her early stuff. And um, then she went on to do a ton of soap operas. Was kind I did of not her, know that about her. Bridge. her. Yes, she was in a whole bunch of soap operas. So um, she was on uh, Mick Garris's podcast not long ago. I think it was Mick Garris's podcast. It might have been Joe Dante's. One of the two, Uncle Mick or Uncle Joe, one of their podcasts. Um, And she was talking about how, you know, she goes to soap opera conventions and she goes to horror conventions and how people know her for completely different things. But like occasionally she'll be to soap opera convention and like the wife knows her from soap operas and the husband knows her from horror. And she said that's always really fun. But she just sort of took a few decades off, though, to raise a family. And I think she was still doing some soap work during that time because it was a little more steady. And um, then she got brought back in Your Next. That was kind of her re-entry into horror. And when was that? 2010 or something. Something like that. 
And since then, she is like back. She's been doing all kinds of stuff. She was in, so you're next, Lords of Salem. We are still here, Channel Zero. And I believe the most recent movie she made, Jacob's Wife, I believe she even Mm. had a part in like producing that. Like she secured some of the financing or something. I think you're right about that. Yeah. So it's like she's really come back into the fold and is now even getting interested in, you know, making horror. And I would I would love to see that. And I think she just really shows us that women can contribute, like no matter their age or their stage in life. Um, you know, you don't have to just be young and hot to be a scream queen and be an icon, even though she's she was young and hot and now she's older and hot. She looks great. But yes, absolutely. <laughs> but regardless of her looks, um, she would be doing it. She'd be pulling it off, you know. And so yeah. um, every time I just every time I see her, every time I uh, listen to an interview with her, I'm just I'm just really like on board with her. Yeah. And she's a good Twitter follow as well. So highly Ooh. recommend if you're on Twitter. OK, um, but yeah, and I feel the same way about Dee Wallace. Like she sort of transcends age and she doesn't, she hasn't gotten herself locked in that like, you know, young hot thing where she can't get work after that. Like she, she perseveres on. So yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah I love me some Barbara Crampton. <laughs> I love that choice. Okay. And so the, the last person I have on my list is somebody who I feel like we've talked about established people, but this person is a little bit, I feel like newer, a little bit newer to the horror genre. And that is uh, Tony Collette. And this woman is clearly a force. I mean, she was in The Sixth Sense way back in 1999. That's right, I think. That sounds right. Yeah, it sounds about right. Um, And then she didn't do horror for a long time. Of course, that movie, she was nominated for an Academy Award, which is fantastic for any horror movie to ever be nominated for any Academy Award. Um, So that was like a great start for her. Um, But then a little bit later down the road, she did... The Fright Night remake, which I had forgotten she was in that. Um, Krampus, Hereditary, Velvet Buzzsaw, which is a really fun little horror movie about the art world. If you haven't seen it, check it out. And then I also found out in researching for this, she's going to be in the new miniseries, The Staircase, which is based on the documentary about the guy whose wife fell down the stairs. Yes, it was like clearly he's guilty, but then somehow his trial like it was it's a, it's crazy. Look up the staircase, but she's gonna play the wife. In I did not series. know they were making a scripted adaptation of that. That is yeah. so interesting because I saw that in your notes and I was like, wait, what? she was in the documentary. What? <laughs> so now now I now I'm up to speed. Now I get it. Yeah, but I think Tony Collette to me is such a force because clearly she's a fantastic actress. She's just a treat to watch. Um, but she's brought a credibility to the genre um, because she's a serious actress, you know. But she, to me, I do not think she shies away from horror at all. Um, I think she just takes great roles and does not care. She's not worried that this horror label is going to stain her. And she has really, I think, added a lot of value to the genre, like I said, especially in the past decade or so. I couldn't agree with you more, and I think... She, as you said, she's a force. And I think when you see her in these roles, she goes so hard. I mean, she goes 100% and really commits herself to the role. You can tell that she is all in. And it just makes for outstanding performances. And I know that I'm not alone in this opinion, but I, in my heart of hearts, truly believe that she should have won an Oscar for her performance in Hereditary. And I think it's a crime that 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 she wasn't even nominated for that. And if it weren't a horror movie, if it were a performance in just like, you know, 
a highfalutin family drama, I think she absolutely would have been at least nominated. But because it was a horror film, I feel like it just got overlooked. But I'll go to my grave thinking she should have won an Oscar for that role. Yeah, you know, it is really fascinating um, just to see what things are nominated and when, because we had that big year, I think it was either maybe 2018 or 2019, when Get Out and Shape of Water were both nominated and won stuff at the Academy Awards. And I was like, oh, is horror going to start getting more of a nod? No. No, it was a fluke. It was Same just thing a with comedy. <laughs> comedy never gets anything either, you know. It's, it's like people true. don't they'll take those seriously. But it's whatever. It's whatever. That's you know, we won't go down we won't go down that rabbit trail. That's okay. We don't we don't want to be normies. We don't want mainstream. You know. <laughs> yeah. Oh well wait, Success. I do need to make a nod to Parasite one best picture a couple That's years true. ago, which I still have not watched. <laughs> Ooh. <laughs> yeah, I need to. So Frankenstein, Tabitha King, Paris. We just need to have like a weekend getaway where we can catch up on all the essential stuff that we've each missed and just like yeah. do it all at once. That sounds like the best girls trip ever. I know, right? We need to yeah. make it happen. We, do we don't live that happen. far. We don't live that far away from each other. No, we either we can, we can meet in the middle or I just have to like swing up to see you when I come to Florida next. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> let's do it. All I do is worry and slave and defend you. And all I get back is that face on your face. Okay, so our next category is producers, directors. And I just kind of lumped these together because I feel like, you know, they're not the same job, but these are the people really like behind the scenes, pulling the strings, making things happen. These are the people that we don't get to see. We might see their name, but they don't get as much recognition as you know the faces in front of the screen so um i definitely wanted to take take a little detour and talk about the people who are really in the trenches making the thing happen jacqueline who's on your list uh well the first person that i wanted to talk about was julia de cornell please forgive me that i don't have good french pronunciation it's not a language that i speak but she is the director of raw from 2016 and also of Titan. Again, please excuse me if that pronunciation is wrong, but uh, her most recent film from just last year. I think that she's really reviving the trend for uh, the new French extremity type of films that we saw in the early and mid 2000s, like Calvaire, Inside, High Tension, Martyrs. There's a whole, you know, laundry list of those. And I feel like that dropped off for a little while. And I feel like she's kind of bringing France back into this um, extreme style of films so Raw was her first film. Her second feature film was Titan, just from last year. And it won the Palme d'Or at Cannes, which is basically like the highest prize you can get in cinema. Wow. Um, and she was only the second female director to do so. The first was Jane Campion in 1993 for The Piano. So this is, I think, a huge coup for women in film. Really notable. And, and this film has also been submitted to the to this year's Oscars from France. That's that's their film selection for the year for the Oscars. Oh. So we'll see. We'll see what happens with that. But I think her films are so beautiful and brutal simultaneously. Uh, and she I've read a lot of interviews with her and she describes them as not just being straight horror. She describes her movies as like a crossover between various genres. She calls her movies genre films. She doesn't really say horror, but she's mm-hmm. like, they're horror, but they're also dramas. Um, raw, she also calls a teenage comedy. <laughs> that's that's an interesting way to put it, but that's the label she puts on it. And she says that her films really focus on humanity 
And that's really what she's always driving for in her films. And when you think about it like that, I think it's easy to see that. She talks about the film Raw as being a vehicle for like seeking your humanity through building your moral self and the juxtaposition of the main character, Justine, with her sister, Alexia. And the difference between them is one has like a moral code that you can identify with, even as she's doing bad things, you still are along for the ride with her because she's still at her core has a moral center, whereas her sister really has none. And she's basically an animal. And then that humanity she's talking about, she kind of is exploring that in the film Titan through the way she puts it in an interview is shedding any representation or social construct that goes with gender. And also she calls it an absolute and pure love story between two characters. And so it's interesting that in this dressing of like violent and brutal things that happen to the body and a lot of body horror in her films, underneath all of that, she's seeking these kernels of humanity. And so I think she's doing really interesting and, and complex work that you can really pull apart and, and really unpack with, with a lot of meat on there. So um, I think that she, I mean, in, in your first two films to have achieved such things as she has, I can't wait to see the career that she has in the future. I think she's just really, really talented. So I am really intrigued by her because this is currently a big blind spot in my horror because I have not seen either one of her films. Mm, okay. Um, but I love French horror and I love New French Extremity. So I don't know why I haven't gone down this particular avenue, but it's one that I am definitely looking forward to going down for sure. Yeah. And and I think that the, she's going to be more and more accessible to American audiences as time goes on. Or at least I hope so. I hope that's not just wishful thinking, but she did direct a couple of episodes of M. Night Shyamalan's TV series, Servant. And so I hope that that's at least like a hint of kind of mm -hmm. opening the door to um, becoming known by American audiences. But yeah, I, I know that you love the French Extremity movies as well. I love them too. And I remember that period of time in like the early mid 2000s that it was really, I mean, kind of a like a revolutionary thing. I hadn't really seen films like that before. Oh, so yeah. um, it, I really think that me, you'd enjoy her films. Yeah, it hit me over the head. I remember, I think High Tension was the first new French extremity that I saw. Me and too. yeah, and I mean, I was just, I remember it was when I, I was single and I lived alone in an apartment and I, I worked a later shift at a print shop and I would get home at like midnight and I would watch mm. a horror movie almost every night. And so it's, one, two in the morning, and I'm by myself in my living room at 24 watching High Tension. I mean, whew. that's an experience. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, oh, man, I'm, I miss those days. And when uh, yeah. when there are people who are getting into New French Extremity for the first time, I'm like, oh, I'm envious, you know? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you you kind of wish you could go back and have that first kind of shocking experience. But yeah. So I think that she's like reviving that. And so mm -hmm. I think that you'd really, really be into her films. I, I would recommend it. Awesome. Yeah. So um, I see. I'm going to go ahead and jump in and talk about somebody else who... I think did something pretty revolutionary in, in her time. And that is uh, Mary Heron and Mary Heron directed American psycho. Now Mary Heron hasn't done like a whole bunch of horror. I I'm not even sure if she's ever really done any other horror, but with the one horror that she did, I mean, she made such 
an impact. And um, I've said this a few times. I don't know if I've ever said it on this podcast, but if you only ever make one great horror thing, that's enough. And um, she doesn't have to have a whole bunch of like hits on her list to be important. American Psycho is her masterpiece, probably in her entire career. It is her masterpiece. And it is most certainly enough by any standard. Oh, yeah. Um, she can be done if she wants to. Like Yes. And the reason why I probably bring Mary Heron up almost every time I talk about women in horror, I mean, she comes up on almost every episode. And I think it's because it was just a really influential and important moment to me. So I saw American Psycho with her the first time, um, not right when it came out. It was 2005. I remember it was another one of those things. I was actually living um, in Orlando. I was on the Disney College program. Again, I was working a late shift. I got home late at night, and American Psycho was on TV. It was during October. And I was like, oh, I've never watched this. I'm going to sit down and watch it. And it just blew my mind. And it was the first time I realized, oh, wait, a woman did, did that? That movie at that point in my life was one of the most violent, difficult things I had ever seen. And I could not believe a woman directed it and it had a woman screenwriter as well. Yes. Yes. Uh, oh, gosh. What was her name? Oh, I cannot retrieve that. It's Genevieve something. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry, Genevieve something. Thank you. <laughs> but that movie, I just I was like, oh, my gosh, a woman can do this. And like a woman can do really difficult things. And I think a lot of women, especially our age, had that reaction to Mary Heron's Psycho. So I think it will continue to be influential. I think it has been. I think it will continue to be. It's just a force of nature. And she has done some other things. She's done some TV episodes of horror, even though she hasn't done mm. other horror movies. Um, like she directed an episode of Six Feet Under. Okay. She directed an episode of Fear Itself. Mm -hmm. which was so Mick Garris did Masters of Horror right and after that was over he did Fear Itself which was one season and she directed mm -hmm. an episode of that and then she also directed an episode of um Constantine the TV adaptation of Constantine I I was not aware of that show I only knew about the the film um which I haven't seen either but yeah I didn't <laughs> I didn't know about that show she so a question for you did mm -hmm. you also read the novel American Psycho no and I don't know if I ever will. <laughs> I don't know if you should. I would not just like blanket recommend that for everyone. So if you don't mind, I'd like to kind of share my experience with American Psycho. Absolutely. So I was in high school. I was a senior in high school when the film came out. And I, they did great marketing for that film. And it was kind of in this, like, you remember the whole marketing kind of thing around Blair Witch where it's like, mm -hmm, oh, it's real. Mm -hmm. So to a lesser extent, they, I remember them doing something similar with American Psycho, where ahead of the film's release, they had this thing where you could sign up to receive emails from Patrick Bateman. Oh my God. <laughs> so you're getting email, these like scary emails from a serial killer. So I remember the, this marketing thing before the film was even released. And it certainly caught my 17 year old attention. And I thought, oh, it's based on a book. I better read this book first because that's just my usual MO. And so <laughs> up to that point, I had like the most kind of intense thing I'd ever read was Stephen King's work, which can get very intense, of course. But I remember when I read the novel American Psycho, I was like, oh, Stephen King is like Dr. Seuss by comparison. I mean, this just, it goes to these like ungodly places. <laughs> like, I just don't know. I don't know. 
it's kind of set apart, I think, from most horror fiction. It, it goes to a level that is not commonly explored, I think. But I think it's it's commonly understood and analyzed to be like a satire of a certain sort of group of men and a, a subset of men at a particular time in our society. Mm-hmm. And what I think is so, so fantastic about Mary Heron's adaptation um, in, in the film is that in the novel, I think Brett Easton Ellis is satirizing a, a subset of men and a certain like American mentality. But I think that Mary Heron puts a sort of uniquely feminine twist on it that is subtle. And it doesn't, I think, correspond with Brett Easton Ellis's sort of uh, perspective on it. I think that it sort of almost becomes like a feminist film in a way. I think it very subtly skewers like all men in a way. Yeah. And so it's interesting that I think it's very inspiring to feel like a woman can take a work by a man that in itself is actually very, very like masculine in its perception and very subtly adjust it to become like a, a more of a feminine perspective. So I, I think it's really just masterful and I think it's very inspiring to those who may want to like write or direct adaptations of works that are not by women. Yeah, definitely. Guinevere Turner. That's, That's it. the screenwriter's name. <laughs> wow. I'm so impressed that you just pulled it that It came out. to me. It came to me. <laughs> All right, Jacqueline, who's up next on your producer director list? So the, the other choice that I had for um, a female director is Jovanka Vukovic, who uh, I think is not a well-known name yet. I hope she becomes one. So this is somebody who's really more of a personal influence to me rather than maybe an influence at large within the horror genre, at least in film per se. Mm-hmm. Um, she was actually the first female editor-in-chief of Rumorg magazine. And she currently, her kind of, I think her, her focus is writing and directing films. So far, she doesn't have a huge CV in the film world. Um, She did a short film called The Captured Bird, which was produced by Guillermo del Toro. I have not actually seen that short, but if it's got Guillermo attached to it, then I feel like that's something I want to explore. Um, What I have seen of hers is she did direct, she wrote and directed a segment for the anthology film XX. Mm, mm Mm-hmm. Uh, if you've seen it, she has, she did the first segment called The Box, which was adapted from a story by Jack Ketchum. Yes. Thank you. Filling in my gaps here. (laughs) Um, But it's the first entry in the anthology. And I think it's one of the two strongest. The other one was done by Karen Kasama, who I know you'll be talking about later. And so I'm really glad that she's venturing into filmmaking. I hope that she continues on this path and I'd really like to see her do a feature film. Uh, But going backwards a little bit, she had spent a lot of years as a horror journalist. And then she spent, I think, about six or seven years as the editor-in-chief of Rumor Magazine. So that was founded by a man named Rodrigo Gudinho. And he was moving on to other things. And he sort of like hand-selected her to take over the magazine for him. And her takeover more or less coincided with my beginning to read Rue Morgue magazine. Mm -hmm. I sort of discovered that while I was in college and around the time that 
I started to become a more serious student of horror as opposed to just like, oh, I want to see, I like horror movies. I'm going to see whatever comes out in theaters. Mm-hmm. I was getting more serious at this time and really wanting to learn like, what are the roots of horror? What are the origins? What are the iconic things that I need to know? What are the lesser known things that I need to know? How do I become like a really knowledgeable person about this genre? And how do I find other people like me? And so Rue Morgue was really my entry point to that. I think Fangoria is kind of that point for a lot of people, but mm-hmm. I really always just gravitated towards Rue Morgue. Um, I was an English major and I was an English teacher, and I feel like Rue Morgue just has a little bit more of a like literary feel to its writing and its analysis of films and the horror genre at large. And so it really just appealed to me and spoke to me, especially while I was writing my thesis. Um, my undergraduate thesis was on racial archetypes in horror films. And so I was consuming a lot of Rue Morgue and it was really eye-opening to see a woman hold such an influential role in a genre that appears on the surface to be a boys club. Mm-hmm. And so I think she, and she was really a predecessor to the current editor who is Andrea Subasati with Dave Alexander in the middle. But I think Yovanka was really a trailblazer in that way. And I think even she was a little bit surprised at the time that she was able to take over because she kind of felt like, I don't have, you know, a lot of journalistic experience, but Rodrigo just saw something in her and uh, liked her intelligence and and the way that she handled herself. And so she's, she's a, a huge personal influence for me. Awesome. You'll have to uh, keep keep us updated if uh, if you hear of any more feature films from her. So we'll know what to look out for. Yeah. So I, I hope to see that soon. I have a couple more people that I want to talk about. Um, yes. <laughs> this is this is probably my like my biggest my biggest category that I have the most people in. Um, first of all, I'll talk about somebody kind of from the past, and then I'll talk about somebody from now. I think we cannot move on from producers and directors without talking about the great Deborah Hill. Deborah Hill was John Carpenter's like right hand early on in his career. They also had a personal relationship. I don't know if they were ever married, but they were they were definitely romantic for a time. Hmm. These are the first credits. Like these are the first seven credits in her career. Halloween, The Fog, Halloween 2, Escape from New York, Halloween 3, The Dead Zone and Clue. Love it. I mean, those are all bangers. <laughs> Go, Deborah. And there's a lot of John Carpenter in there, sure. But, you know, she also worked with David Cronenberg, which... Mm, in, I didn't realize or, that. Yeah, so he directed The Dead Zone. Have you seen The Dead Zone? Oh, that's Zone? right. Yeah, I, I did see it years ago. I haven't seen it recently. But yeah, I forgot that that was Cronenberg. Yeah, I was like, oh, I all these movies that I love. So she, like Jamie Lee Curtis, you know, she was a big part of the original Halloween. She co-wrote it. And Haddonfield is named after her hometown. She's from Haddonfield, New Jersey. That is so cool. Yeah. So a lot of this like foundational stuff that we all have from Halloween is because of Deborah Hill. And um, I heard somebody say on a podcast, I cannot remember which podcast it was. Sorry, I listened to too many. But someone suggested that his films started to drop off once he was no longer working with Deborah. And they were, you know, speculating that, you know, it could be just coincidence or or is it because he really needed her to, like, elevate his stuff? Kind of like we talked about with Tabitha King. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Who knows? I like to think that she had a lot to do with it. So let's see. There's there's a there's a little a little bit that I wanted to read about her from uh, just from Wikipedia. So, you know, take mm-hmm. it with a grain of salt. But um, 
She was honored by Women in Film in 2003 with the Crystal Award. She recalled the transition from being called sweetheart and darling in her early years as a producer to the respectful ma'am many years later on the DVD commentary for Escape to Escape from New York. Hill helped support talent in the film industry, and a number of Hill's associates went on to later success in film. For example, James Cameron once worked for Hill in the visual effects department. Damn. Right? <laughs> uh, Jeffrey Chernoff was Hill's second assistant director and went on to become the executive producer of Black Panther. Mm, okay. Friends and colleagues commented that Hill became frustrated with the film industry in that the industry did not welcome more women as directors. Even with the lack of support, Hill persisted with her work. Um, when she died of cancer on March 7th, 2005, Carpenter told the Associated Press that working with Hill was one of the greatest experiences of my life. She had a passion for not just movies about women or women's ideas, but films for everybody. You know, I am so glad that you chose her to talk about because I really knew almost nothing about Deborah Hill. Really? Now, just hearing all those things that you said, it makes me really want to do a deep dive on her and get to know more about who she was as a person Mm -hmm. and her artistic influence. I I hadn't realized that she had been so instrumental um, to such influential people. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, well, I welcome, think she, James Cameron. I think she's one of those ones. I mean, I've always heard her name, but I didn't really mm-hmm. know that she was this influential until the last, yeah, probably a year or two. And same, mm-hmm. I'm I'm just kind of fascinated with her, and I can't help but feel like, you know, she's she's one of these big influences that we didn't even realize, you know, what yeah. she'd done. Yeah, kind of like underappreciated that you don't really see the woman behind the name. Mm-hmm. Um, in my mind, I always just sort of associate her like, oh, she's kind of the right hand person behind Halloween. And like the first couple of Halloween movies, or I don't know how many of the later sequels she um, was involved with, but that's kind of the the beginning and end of it in my mind. And so I'm really glad to know that there's so much more. Yeah. So that's pretty awesome. Okay. And the last person I want to talk about is uh, Karin Kusama, who... I don't know. You know, there's a lot of female directors that kind of were coming up the same time she was, like Jennifer Kent with The Babadook, Mm -hmm. and there were some others. But um, she has always just kind of stood out for me um, for reasons which maybe I can't even, like, grasp. But um, she directed, of course, Jennifer's Body and The Invitation, and she also had a segment on XX. Mm -hmm. And The Invitation, I just love. It's one of those that I feel like it's going to be, again, I know I said this once already in this episode, but I think it's going to be one of my favorites, like, of the decade. It's just solid all the way through. And it seems like the horror community at large loves it. I have not heard much negative feedback for The Invitation. I don't know if I've heard any negative feedback on The Invitation. I think uh, pretty much anybody that I've ever spoken with about it has, like, a net positive feeling about it. Yeah. Uh, Well-deserved. I, I, and I think everything of hers that I've seen, Jennifer's Body, The Invitation, and the segment in XX, I haven't seen anything beyond those three things, but I think they're all stellar. Mm-hmm. And the interesting thing about The Invitation as well, so I was wondering if she just directed it or if she wrote it. So she directed it, but she, her husband and his writing partner wrote it. So they were mm-hmm. like a team. Okay. And it was Funded by Game Changer Films, which is a company that funds films directed by women. 
And so the budget was small. It was kind of a Blumhouse situation where like the budget's small, but you do what you want. So she and her husband and his partner did this movie and they did it the way they wanted it. And there seems to be not a lot of interference. And this is what we get, you know. But I I did not know, though, that it was funded by this company that, that specifically funds female horror films. Basically, if a woman had not directed this movie, it would not exist. It's just amazing. And I didn't know that either about Game Changer. Yeah. So I don't know. I have not <clears throat> dove into them to see if like they're still around or what else they've done. But I was mm-hmm. like, I hope so. You know, um, I mean, I would think that that must be probably its most notable output. Probably. I mean, I think the invitation is pretty well known and beloved in, in the horror community. Yeah. And I'm pretty so. sure it won um, some film festival awards and stuff. I mean, there are so many film festivals these days. It's kind of hard to keep up. But like we said, it had had really good reception. And um, so she doesn't have a ton of like horror films to her name yet, Mm -hmm. but she is working on TV. She's directed a lot of TV episodes. Two notable ones that stood out to me were The Outsider, which was Mm -hmm. an HBO series based on a Stephen King novel that I really enjoyed. And also Yellow Jackets, which is like all the rage right now. I have not watched that yet. Have you? I have not. No. I don't even really know the premise. Me either. <laughs> okay. <laughs> we'll, we'll, put, we'll set that aside for our girls weekend, our catch up yeah. and horror weekend. Yeah. But I'm hoping that, you know, directing some of these sort of probably what I call like, you know, higher drama or horror shows, I'm hoping will open the door for her to give her some opportunity to do some more feature films because um, I just think we're going to continue to see good things from her if she's given the opportunity. Yeah, I think so too. I think she's pretty like reliable as somebody who has a really strong creative voice and really strong output. So I know that you're like a super fan of hers and I'm I'm looking forward to seeing what she does too. I feel like there's so many that just have like such bright futures ahead of them that I hope they continue to like give us more stuff to consume. Definitely. And I mean, I mean, several of the women we've talked about today too are relatively young. So they have, Mm -hmm. you know, they have decades ahead mm-hmm. of them to do, to do good things. So we'll oh, keep yeah. our eyes open. <laughs> For sure. Did you go through our things? I'm sorry. I'm sorry. We, we should go. No, no, we should no, go. no. Something very dangerous is going on here and nobody's talking about it. We're all just ignoring it because David brought out some good wine. Okay, so moving on to the next category, we are going to talk about some female characters in horror. Who you got? Yay. Uh, I think that one of my favorite female characters of all time, and I know I'm not alone in this, is Ellen Ripley from the Alien movies. Now, Mm -hmm. full disclosure, I have not actually seen Alien 3. So I don't even know. I, I really have no knowledge of that film. But as far as her presence in Alien and Aliens, the sequel, I think she is just um, kind of an unparalleled icon of women in horror. Um, I think she's just one of the most unique characters and I, I wish we had more Ellen Ripley's. I think right off the bat, she's portrayed differently from most female characters that we see in horror. She's smart. She's capable. She's cool headed. She never gets hysterical. She's not subjected to unwanted romantic advances. She's not sexualized by male characters. Now, of course, the kind of like downside to this is the realization, which I think um, most fans of this franchise have, which is that she was the the character of Ellen Ripley was actually originally written as a man. Mm -hmm. And so on the one hand, 
it makes me happy that we that they were flexible enough in their casting that we were able to get a female mm-hmm. actress in this role and have this like super badass hero that we could all kind of grab onto and root for. But on the other hand, it is sort of disheartening that this couldn't have just been written as a female character to to begin with. It had to be written as a man for us to get this type of character. It's like a little bit of a bummer. You know, it's it's kind of a mixed bag, but setting all that aside, I think it's it's so great to watch her. And I think despite the fact that, she, that the character was written as a man, I think she's so relatable to female viewers because despite the fact that she's not like sexualized by the other characters in the film and some of these other negative things that we're so accustomed to seeing in films, we can still relate to the fact that she is clearly the smartest person in the room and yet she's constantly disregarded by her coworkers in this situation. And here I'm really talking about like the first alien. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think that it's really relatable, unfortunately, for, for women to be able to connect with that and see that in, in this story. But I think we also get a lot of vindication because by the end, everyone else has died. <laughs> she is the, the lone survivor. And so it's, it's a little bit of like a, well, told you so, yeah. that we can kind of like cheer for that and be like, you should have listened to Ripley. All right. She, yeah. she knew what she was talking about. The smart woman and her cat, listen. right? <laughs> exactly. I love that. I love yeah. that nobody listens to her, but she survives the end. It's her and her cat, you know, flying off to safety. So, <laughs> Okay. So speaking of smart women, why don't you talk about Clarice Starling? Oh, Clarice, how I love you. <laughs> So, of course, Clarice Starling is the protagonist of Silence of the Lambs. I'm really only going to focus on that. I know she appears in other stories within that that series, but I'm really only going to focus on Silence of the Lambs. Like Ripley, she is a calm, intelligent, capable, driven woman who is, you know, kind of on the cusp of this burgeoning career with the FBI. But unlike Ripley, because she was so clearly written as a female character. I feel like her sex is explicitly highlighted in a lot of ways in in this film. Like Ripley, she is disregarded by male colleagues, but unlike her, she is constantly subjected to the objectifying male gaze. I mean, by almost every man or almost like every kind of sector of of men in, in this film, we have Chilton, who's the, I guess, the director or whatever of the prison where Hannibal Lecter is being contained. She's objectified by the local police. There's a very unsettling scene where she goes to the funeral home to um, examine the the body of one of um, Buffalo Bill's victims. And she's just kind of standing there silently waiting for her boss to come back. And a dozen or more local police officers are just standing like in a circle around her, silently staring at her. And they it feels so hostile and resentful. And it's very uncomfortable to watch. And she's even like to a degree, I think, kind of sexualized by her boss, Jack Crawford, who is like on her side and supporting her. But he even betrays her in a moment in that um, funeral home scene where before they get started with the examination, he's telling the local sheriff like, oh, you know, this case has some like sex crime components to it. Maybe we should discuss it out of, you know, certain company. And so they Mm -hmm. go to discuss that in private. And, she, and he does this in front of all of the local officers and she's just kind of like left out to dry 
in this very uncomfortable scenario and you really feel her vulnerability and her like this feeling that he's like done her wrong. But what I love about her is that she calls him out on it. Yes. Later they're, they're in the car going back to the FBI office or whatever. And she's like, you know, this is her superior and somebody who's like very powerful. And she's technically, I think still a student. I don't think she's even even graduated an agent yet. (laughs) Yeah. And she, she brings it up to him in a respectful way, but she says, you know, sir, when you enact these double standards, other officers are looking to you to see how to act and they look up to you and, you know, she basically calls them out on it. She says it matters. Yeah. (laughs) And I mean, darn it, if she doesn't like kind of make me want to cheer for her. I mean, that takes such guts to be able to say that to your superior. And it makes me feel like this film, despite being made by men primarily, and it has a male director, there's a sympathetic quality to this film that gives Clarice Starling this gutsy kind of ability to bring it all out in the open. And like, she's aware of her own situation, like her own experience, her own like feminine experience within this very male dominated world. But she's also willing to like make that known to the men who have the potential to like oppress her. Mm-hmm. And so I, I think that it's really like, I, I think that this is like a feminist film and it's, I think it's a feminist character and I love Clarice Starling and she's not like just a robot. Like she's not a Terminator. She is like, she's very human and she has a lot of sensitivity that I think makes her more successful as an agent and helps her like succeed um, in this case that she's involved with. You know, we see her emotional background and we see how that kind of comes into play in her perspective on this case she's trying to solve. I, I just think she's she's fantastic. She has all these obstacles posed to her based on her gender and she just kicks them down. So oh, I yeah. love Clarice. Yeah, she's um, she's tough and brave in like every regard. Even mm-hmm, though mm-hmm. she's young and inexperienced and small, you know, yeah. um, none of that really stops her. Um, but she's not really an outspoken or a charismatic person. She's just kind of very quietly goes about her business, does what she needs to do when things get tough, like in that situation with her mm-hmm. boss in the car. She's yeah. not really afraid to like head into the dangerous territory even Mm -hmm. though she seems somewhat of possibly like a reserved person. And I I definitely identify with that. Yeah. The reserved is exactly the word that I kind of had in my mind. And in that vein, what I was saying about her being very human is I think that she's so brave, but not because she's not afraid. I think she like pushes beyond her fear. Like I think she had to be afraid to speak up to Jack in that conversation in the Mm -hmm. car. And then in that scene towards the end where she she finds Buffalo Bill's sort of lair Mm -hmm. where this young woman is being held captive in this disgusting pit. She's clearing the the building. She's going from room to room. It's totally pitch dark in there and she's got her gun and she seems so afraid. Like she's shaking and like almost hyperventilating. I mean, she looks afraid. And I mean, I really feel that when I'm watching her, but she has the bravery to just push forward anyway. Like I always think that like courage is not the lack of fear. It's the like ability to persevere in the face of fear. And I think she totally encapsulates that. And like you said, given her youth and inexperience and her physical smallness, I think it's just an incredible character. 
So I have a two that characters I want to talk about. Well, it's two and a half, let's say. <laughs> I mean, it's really um, three, but that's okay. Yeah, it's really, it's really, it's really three. So, um, first of all, I want to talk about somebody we mentioned already, and that is Carrie White. Um, our girl, Carrie White. Our girl, Carrie White. Yes, she's been popping up in my world a lot in the past few months. As we said earlier, Carrie Stephen King's first novel was a hit. Um, a lot of people have read Carrie that haven't read anything else of his. But the movie came out in uh, the 70s, 76, 76, I I believe. Yeah. Yeah. So it was pretty early in the world of modern horror. The thing is with Carrie, it's just, it was such a huge hit in popular culture. Between the movie and the book, people still to this day know who Carrie is. And when you're talking about somebody being wronged or getting revenge or like making a woman mad, people will throw it out like, oh, are you going to go carry on me? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, sort of this like um, collective. It's in our like collective lexicon. Yeah, it's like permeated pop culture. So even if you haven't read Carrie or even seen it, you probably know the scene with the blood and the eyes and and all of that. Now, Carrie, she's her character. There's way more to her than losing it at the prom. And uh, I'll just plug Straight Chilling right here. If you want to hear a conversation about that, you can go to their listen to their Carrie episode. I was on it. Um, and we talk a lot about her character and how nuanced it is. So please refer to that. But for the purpose of today, just the fact that she has become an icon in pop culture, I think, makes her a really influential character. And as a side note, that movie in general had a, a strong female cast. And the women were really at the forefront of that story, both in the book and in the movie. So Carrie's an interesting character, but there's also a lot of other interesting female characters in that story. And so I I could not let today go by without mentioning my girl, Carrie. Um, Can I just tell you real quick about how Carrie came to be like the first real grown up horror movie that I ever watched? Yes, please tell us that story. You were talking about how how pervasive that imagery is and just sort of the collective pop culture knowledge of this character in this story. So I was in eighth grade and I'm sad to say that at that time I was obsessed with reading teen like fashion magazines, which are so like, I think damaging (laughs) to the female (laughs) psyche. I do not recommend that. Um, But I was reading 17 magazine Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and it was like, the prom issue or something. Now I was in eighth grade. I was years away from going to a prom, but still it was sort of this like fantasy to engage. Oh yeah. I read those too. This magical, like this magical event that's going to take place, this like rite of passage someday that I'm going to have going to the prom. And the article I was reading in 17 magazine was about like what kind of prom dress to get based on your personality. Yes. (laughs) You're having (laughs) memories too right now, aren't you? Yeah. So it's like, if you're kind of like a real girly girl, you get kind of like a ball gown style with a big poofy skirt and lots of tulle and um, like a very fluffy kind of princessy cloud looking thing. And if you're, you know, kind of a like an offbeat sort of person, maybe you wear like pants or something crazy. Um, and then it was like, if you're kind of just a low key down to earth kind of girl, maybe you wear just like a simple slip dress. And I swear the picture that they included with this little section on if you're like a down-to-earth girl for a slip dress was Carrie wearing her pink simple her very pale pink simple Mm -hmm. dress but it was post pig blood dumping (laughs) and for the life of me this 
It was like 1995. For the life of me, I cannot imagine why they thought that was like a great idea. But for me, that was like a real like moment of like eye opening that I was like, I don't know who this Carrie person is. I don't know what this photo is from. There's like a little caption that's like from, you know, Sissy Spacek is Carrie from 1976. I'm like, I don't know what Carrie is. I don't know who Sissy Spacek is. I don't know why she looks like that, but I need to know. Like, this is something I need to discover. (laughs) Forget about the prom. Who cares about that? I need to know what's up with Carrie. What is this? And so that was like, I mean, bizarrely enough, like who discovers horror films that way. But that was like my little entry point was the prom special in 17 magazine. That's fantastic. Like, I feel like that was just for you. Whoever made that weird choice to put Carrie in there, that was just for you, Jacqueline. And they didn't even know it. I think so. I mean, it seems like such a weird choice, but yeah, it was, it was just like a little secret message for 1995 Jacqueline. I love it. That's a great story. (laughs) So who's your next uh, character that you want to talk about? The last character characters I want to talk about. Um, I think we cannot do an influential women in horror month episode without at least passing glance to the final girls. Oh yeah. Um, So final girls are not the most interesting trope, really. To me, anyway, I feel like there's way more interesting women in the genre, but we cannot deny the importance of the final girl. It's how a lot of us were introduced to some of our favorite horror characters. So the term final girl was coined by Carol Clover, who wrote Men, Women, and Chainsaws, um, in a 1987 essay. And uh, there's a interesting article that I read about it that I will link in the show notes. But um, the term final girl was coined by a fellow horror nerd, and I really do like that. So I want to talk about Sally Hardesty from Texas Chainsaw and Laurie Strode from Halloween, because Sally is one of the first final girls. I don't know if she's the first, but she's one of the first. And I mean, man, I don't know if any final girl goes through as much as this poor woman. She suffers. She really does. And she seems so sweet and down to earth. You know, this Mm -hmm, was before, mm -hmm. like, all the tropes were established. You know, so I feel like all of Texas Chainsaw, the whole cast, just seems like we're just friends doing this thing, you know. Yeah. Um, So there's an authenticity to it. And, of course, that last image of Texas Chainsaw, where she's screaming, covered in blood in the back of the truck is just it's a fantastic ending. And so I can't say there wouldn't be a Laurie Strode without a Sally Hardesty, but I think Sally is at least a part of the important foundation, and she certainly leaves an impact. So Laurie, a few years down the road, because we got, uh, let's see, uh, Texas Chainsaw was 73, Halloween was 78, I think is mm-hmm. right. So just five years down the road, we got Laurie, Lori is not my favorite final girl. I don't think she's the most interesting final girl, but she might be the most important final girl. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, Because, of course, Halloween is a cornerstone. It was a game changer. It spawned everything else. We might not have any other final girls as a common trope without Lori. And so we've already Mm -hmm. talked about Jamie Lee. Um, and so, of course, we, ha- we, have to, we have to nod to Lori. I mean, we know for sure that Friday the 13th was a direct ripoff of, <laughs> of Halloween oh, because yeah. the producers have said so. <laughs> exactly. <Yeah. laughs> we de- this is not hearsay. <laughs> yes, they used to say no, and they finally were like, yeah. 
It's like, come on. Come on. Yeah. <laughs> um, and my favorite final girl does come from that franchise. And uh, that's Ginny from the second one. She is, she's my jam. So any thoughts you want to add about Sally or Lori? Well, I think more broadly than just Sally or mm-hmm. Lori, the the concept of the final girl in general, I think you're absolutely right that it's not the most interesting or complex character type, but I do think it's really significant because I think that horror has a history of at times objectifying and sexualizing women in really uncomfortable ways. I think there are a lot of instances in horror where women are treated just like as bodies to be like murdered and disposed of or sexually assaulted or, you know, any number of, of things. But at the same time, I think paradoxically, I think horror has a history of being like more progressive for women than you might expect. And I think that the trope of the final girl is one of the earliest ways that it that horror as a genre achieves that. I think nowadays, like in the past like 10, 15, even 20 years, we're getting like some very complex and fully realized female characters. And especially with like more and more women working as creators in the horror genre. But before that kind of progression in recent years, horror does something for women in uh, as the, the trope of the final girl does something for women in the horror genre that I think is kind of unheard of in other film representation, at least like so consistently in like the seventies and the eighties, which is like, you have this character type that despite being pursued by a killer of some sort, and despite witnessing usually the murders of like her whole group of friends or the people around her or other people who are trying to save her, like police officers or other authority figures. It's a character who is strong and smart and resourceful enough to survive. And I think that that is something that women five decades ago could really latch onto and see like a lot of strength and women being given credit for the ability to do that when I don't think that's so common in other, in other areas of film or in other artistic representation, you know, the seventies is kind of like the, the post women's lib time when I think there's some backlash against the feminist movement. And I think sometimes other types of films get very, very conservative and like restricting towards women in a lot of ways, but this trope of the final girl, while not terribly complex, gives women a way to like be strong. And so I think it's really important and enduring for that reason. And to be the star of the show. I mean, everybody else is expendable, right? So you've got, you've got the big bad and you've got Mm -hmm. the final girl. And I suppose you could argue that you wouldn't have the big bad without the final girl. You know, there, there always is that equal. Yeah. It's like an interlocked yin and yang sort of thing. Mm -hmm. Like they need each other to each exist. Yeah. Which makes me think of, uh, have you seen Behind the Mask, The Rise of yes. Leslie Vernon? Oh my God, I love that movie so much. <laughs> I think it's so brilliant. Yes, me too. And I mean, it speaks directly to what we're talking about. They, I mean, they they skewer a lot of tropes, but like that's, mm-hmm. that's the one that everything is really hung on is that he has to find the right, I think he calls her a survivor girl. Oh, oh yeah. Well, it's almost like fate. It's like they're, yes. they're linked. They're linked by fate. It's almost like a romantic relationship. Yes. Like they are each other's twisted soulmates. Yeah. In a He's way. like, he can like sense her. You know? Yes. 
Yeah, it's like they're almost two separate parts of the same organism or maybe I'm getting too far there, but that's, I don't know, <laughs> that's what was happening in my brain. Yes, yes. Oh my God. Did you, did you get that? Did you get that? Yeah. Did you get that? Tell me you got that. I got it, I got did it. Did you see that, how we sensed each other? Okay, so moving on, we've, we've talked about kind of the past and we've talked about the present, but I wanted to take a few minutes to talk about future trends. You know, who is just now coming on your radar and uh, who are some people that you think either are, are now influencing horror and are going to influence horror in the future? Well, a, a couple of women that I'm so happy to be exploring and getting to know and uh, learning their voices a little bit are Nia DaCosta and Carmen Maria Machado. I think these are women, these are both women of color. Um, Nia DaCosta is a director and Carmen Maria Machado is a writer. And I think it's so important to have more voices of women of color as we move forward in the horror genre. Uh, I think that's, I mean, even a smaller subset than just women in horror. It's like, these are people who are really under, underrepresented in the creation process of horror. And um, I'm so happy to see the, the kind of work that they're doing. And I feel like these are real emblems of what's going to be hopefully happening in the future. So um, just briefly, I'll, I'll kind of give some highlights of each. So Nia DaCosta, I think probably people, if they know, if they're familiar with her, it's because she directed the 2021 remake, reboot, sequel, requel of Candyman, which yes. I know you are super knowledgeable about. And you um, appeared on the Straight Chillin' podcast um, episode on that film. And y'all's analysis was just so smart and, and complex. It's, that's definitely a good listen. Anybody who wants to hear more analysis of that, of that film. Uh, so she's the only black female director to have a film debut at number one um, at the box office, which I think is just a huge accomplishment. And yeah. what I think is so brilliant about what she did with that film is like, she took the mythology of Candyman and um, in, the, in the original 1992 film and turned that from a singular story about a single individual and the kind of like historical continuation of this, this individual who was murdered and this curse that sort of comes back with him. And she turned it into something much larger, like a symbol of all black suffering in America. And that's like a wider um, transgression, like a, a, a wider, like national crime that needs to be addressed. And she, I think really opens that up and makes the, that small mythology, that kind of singular mythology from the original film into something that becomes like just a, a more complex conversation, opens the door for like a lot more truth to, to be told. And, um, I think there's just such brilliant, brilliant choices in that film. I don't love everything about it. You know, I could nitpick some, some things here and there, but overall, I think it's really an achievement. And I think it's so important and correct that Nia DaCosta as a black woman was kind of given the reins to retell this story from the perspective of the people that it's about. Fantastic. She didn't only direct it, but she co-wrote it co -wrote as well, it, yes. right? Yeah. yeah. With Jordan yeah. Peele and one other person whose name escapes yeah. me. At so the she moment, really but. had a, a lot of control over that story. So like, like you're yeah. saying, a lot of where the story went and a lot of what the story is trying to do is a direct result of her creation. Yeah, I feel like this is really like very heavily her style and her voice that she is bringing to this. It's not 
yeah, like you said, not just the director. She's really kind of at the core of the way that this story is presented. Yeah. And I've seen, um, you know, some people refer to it as like, oh, you know, George, Jordan Peele's Candyman and, and other people come on and be like, no, no, like this is Nia DaCosta's Candyman. You know, of course he produced yeah. it. I'm sure he gave her the opportunity. He probably hired her, mm-hmm. um, which is fantastic. But it's like, just make sure credit where credit is due. Yes, he's highly involved in getting this made, mm-hmm. but she is the director. She's the vision, you know. And I can see why it's like sort of easy to do that. I mean, his name is like very on everybody's minds and on the tip of everybody's tongue uh, the past few years. And so it's like, I think it's kind of natural to want to latch onto that because I think everybody's on the Jordan Peele train. And but no, I I agree. It's like this needs to be the credit needs to be given where it's where it's due. And this is Nia DaCosta's voice. One of the people that I want to talk about kind of on the same train is uh, a black creator. Uh, Her name is Tana Reeve Du. And uh, she's another one like Nita Costa, who's just just kind of on my radar. She is uh, an author, a producer and expert on the mm-hmm. horror genre. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. She executive produced Horror Noir, which is a documentary about the black history of horror. I love horror documentaries. I'll watch probably any horror documentary. And um, it was on Shudder. And it was so cool and so well made and I learned a ton and it was super fascinating. So I definitely recommend Horror Noir if you haven't watched it. She also directed a segment on Jordan Peele's The Twilight Zone. Which oh, no kidding. Yeah, which I know like people are kind of mixed on The Twilight Zone, whatever. But still, I think that's an accomplishment worth note. She's a professor at UCLA and teaches mm-hmm. film studies classes, which is pretty cool. So she's she's like a little jack of all trades. I want to be and, in her class. Oh, me too. Me too. Um, but so her insights are they're currently being sought out. Like I've just started seeing her pop up in all these documentaries and articles and things. So I think people are uh, seeing her as a valuable resource and a valuable voice. And I expect to continue to see to see her pop up. Um, I want to read some of her books and um, I'm looking forward to seeing kind of what she does next. She and I believe her husband produced a horror noir anthology that is now on Shudder. And it's Mm -hmm. um, every segment is it's it's all black creators. So um, so I'm just I'm looking forward to just keeping an eye on her and uh, and seeing seeing what she does. Definitely. Um, I've seen bits and pieces of that documentary. I haven't seen the whole thing straight through yet, but um, it's a topic I'm, I'm really interested in. And it was, um, you know, very related to what I wrote my senior thesis about um, as r- racial archetypes in horror. Um, and interestingly, that documentary is sort of like based on a book called Horror Noir by Robin oh. Means Coleman, yes, who yes, is yes. also a, a black woman. Yes. So more women to get into there. Um, I confess that I have not actually read this book. I own it, um, but I have not yet read it. But yeah, so that's kind of like the basis for that documentary. I think given like my limited time for consuming horror, I think I'm probably gonna have to settle for the documentary for a while before I get around to the book, but it's on my list. So um, I think it's it's great to have somebody um, kind of bringing some of these things to the forefront that are not so frequently talked about or recognized by white audiences, some of these issues um, and the representation of black people in film. So um, yeah, I, I, I like that choice. Yeah. It's interesting to me, um, even regardless of any kind of like, you know, 
larger like social or moral commentary i just find it interesting how horror seeps into all kinds of different crevices and cultures in the world and kind of how that shakes out like the new folk horror documentary on shutter is really cool because of that because you get the british and the american and the japanese and the norwegian and it's it's like it's interesting how different they all are but then there's like common crossovers and a lot of cultures that i think are just like common to humanity and so i always find those cultural perspectives just really interesting and really valuable Yeah, I mean, horror is such a universe unto itself with like peripheral galaxies. And, you know, I mean, it's there's so much to it. And I think it's so commonly misperceived as like just slasher films, like people who are not fans of the genre, they hear horror and they think like Nightmare on Elm Street, Halloween, Friday the 13th. And (laughs) from then on, it gets a little fuzzy and we're not sure where to go. But I mean, those of us in the know are just aware of this like expanse this universe that that is available that's um i mean we can never really like consume it all right like no. it's sort of it's it's almost infinite i would no. say not in the world of streaming we'll we'll never get there <laughs> isn't it a little disheartening to know that like you're gonna die someday without ever having like watched everything that you wanted to <laughs> oh well you're i never really, gonna catch up i hadn't really thought of it but thanks <laughs> Oh, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so tell me about Carmen Maria Machado. I'm so excited to talk about Carmen Maria Machado. I don't even know what to do with myself. I love that she's kind of like my last person. It's like, I want to finish with a bang. So Carmen Maria Machado is a queer Latina writer. She doesn't have a ton of, you know, huge works out yet, but primarily her her three like most lengthy and significant and well-known works are a collection of stories of short stories that had previously i think mostly appeared in like literary magazines and journals and things like that a memoir about a an abusive romantic relationship that she was involved in with another woman and then a graphic novel so three major works and all three kind of different genres and formats which is interesting and I'll say that not all of her work is explicitly horror. Like, I don't think anyone would just like flatly describe her as like a horror writer. Um, But even in her work that is not explicitly horror, it feels as though it's almost always tinged with like a horror influence. So her collection of short stories, I I would describe it as like a collection of stories about kind of the horror or uneasiness of living in a woman's body. So the stories are not ex- always explicitly like terrifying or vi- like physically violent or gruesome, but there's always, you can always see an influence in it. So this collection of stories actually won the Shirley Jackson award oh. in 2017. And this is her debut work. And it was a finalist for a national book award. This is very like literary writing, but one thing that's interesting is the very first story in the collection, it's called The Husband Stitch. And it's sort of like a chronicle of this young woman's transition from adolescent to adult and she meets her husband and they marry young and then she kind of goes through her life as a wife and she becomes a mother and it's sort of this full life cycle. And then the kids grow up and move out of the house and then they're kind of alone, empty nesters. But interspersed throughout various episodes in this short story are retellings of some of the stories from the Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark books. 
and they're not identified as such. Like she doesn't say, oh, this is a story from Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark. But I immediately recognize these stories. There's like oh. maybe five or six of them. And I doubt that like every reader necessarily recognizes that. Mm-hmm. I feel like you have to kind of be a certain age mm-hmm. to like pick up on that. She tells them just as kind of a series of a series of urban legends, which is really what those stories are. But she presents them as the narrator of the stories like, oh, this story I heard about this woman in a car with a hook, which of course we've all heard that story, but then you can really identify that they came from this Scary Stories trilogy with some of the kind of more unique stories, like the woman who disappears from the hotel and the daughter is trying to find her and everybody's gaslighting her and several others. But you can tell that she was really influenced by that collection of books as well and is like explicitly interspersing them in her story. Her memoir about the abusive relationship, it's such an interesting like narrative format. Every chapter of the book, she identifies it as like being told in the tr- in the flavor or in the in the perspective of a different like literary genre or literary trope. So there's one chapter that's like the dream house as sci-fi thriller or the dream house as romantic comedy. And she's telling her story, but she's changing like the flavor and the the genre with every chapter. And there are several horror references in there. There's like, you know, Psycho Killer or um, Haunted Mansion, Cosmic Horror, uh, Nightmare on Elm Street. And she like explicitly labels them as such at the beginning of each chapter. And so you can see that she has all these various literary influences, but like the horror and the, the kind of darkness is always there. And then the graphic novel is probably the most like explicitly horror um, piece that, that, that I've seen. It's called The Low, Low Woods. And it's like these two young women in high school and very frightening things are happening in their hometown that they have to like survive. Uh, and so it's just really interesting to see this woman who's getting a lot of accolades in like the high literary circles, mm-hmm. but she is clearly coming from this like background of what is commonly considered to be sort of a low genre. She is, I just find this interesting. She's the artist in residence at UPenn and she teaches writing courses there. And if you look at the back catalog, some of the courses that she's taught, in addition to just like regular freshman's comp or whatever, she had a class called Horror, Mystery and Suspense and then The Art of Haunting. And she just has such a cool, creative, I think like next level sort of voice. Um, I've also listened to her on several horror podcasts and she is so knowledgeable about the genre and is like super analytical and intellectual about it, but at the same time has like a really funny sparkling personality. And I just kind of want to like be her best friend and be her (laughs) at the same time. And um, so I just, uh, I, I, I'm just kind of obsessed with her and I'm reading like all of her work at at once right now. (laughs) What was the name of her uh, short story collection? It's called Her Body and Other Parties. Okay, I have heard of that. Like that book keeps popping up whenever I'm looking for like women in horror stuff. So I feel mm-hmm. like I need to seek that out. Strong recommend. Um, like I said, it won the Shirley Jackson Award. And actually it's being turned into a TV series by the FX channel. Kind of like oh. a Black Mirror style of, okay. of series. So I think that's going to bring her a lot of bigger name recognition as well. Definitely. And probably give her some more opportunity as well. Yeah. I mean, she's she's just killing it right now. And um, she's she's really just like my favorite person at the moment. I'm kind of obsessed. So who's, who's your other um, selection for, 
future people to watch. Yeah. So the last person I want to talk about is somebody that my listeners have heard me mention several times, and that is Andrea Subasati, who is the current editor of Rumorg. I became aware of her uh, listening to Faculty of Horror. So she co-hosts that with Alex West, who is also somebody that's very smart, um, fun to follow on Instagram, posts lots of videos of her cats. <laughs> but um, Andrea is just, she's just super smart. And when I listen to Faculty of Horror, I often think like, I couldn't be on this podcast. <laughs> I feel the same way. I'm like, man, I will never be smart enough to, to be on, on this show. Yeah, show I'm always like, like I don't know what I would have to say on this podcast. Um, but I just think that she and Alex have such a great dynamic. And um, between her being a podcaster and her being the editor of this really important magazine, I just feel like she sort of wields a lot of influence. And she's she's a horror nerd. She's into horror culture. I mean, if you look at her on her Instagram, she looks like a horror person. But I also had the I had the pleasure of meeting her in person. Oh, for real? Yes. So um, I'll try to tell a short version of this story because I've told it on the podcast before. But so I went to the Stanley Hotel in Colorado, which is the Shining Hotel. Um, my husband and I went there as part of our anniversary celebration. And it just happened to coincide with like the biggest weekend of the year at the Stanley. So Dr. Sleep premieres going on, the Shining Balls going on. And because of that, all these influencers and horror journalists have descended upon the Stanley the same weekend I happened to be there. Wow. So she posted that she was going to be there. And I didn't put, I didn't know the Dr. Sleep premiere was happening. So I didn't know why she was going to be there. And I, so when I got there and there was Dr. Sleep stuff every there, I put two <laughs> and two together. And I was like, oh, she's here for Remore. Yes. In fact, she was there to interview Mike Flanagan. Um, cool. Yeah. No big deal. Just casual. <laughs> um so she posted on her Instagram that she was going to be there and I like just messaged her and I was like, hey, I'm a fan, you know, I'm a listener. And, you know, if you want to like meet up and grab a drink or whatever, I would love to. And she was like, sure. And didn't just say that and then not answer back. Like we communicated and we met and we hung out for an afternoon and walked around the Stanley and she was so nice. I'm so envious right now. I just can't even tell you. <laughs> yeah. Like she, I just, when she met me, she like hugged me and I mean, she was just super easy to hang to hang out with and just very cool so you know in addition to being super smart and like a powerhouse she's also a nice person i love hearing um, that yeah so i think her in particular but also just female podcasters in general i feel like are making waves and i think they're going to continue to thrive in the space like my favorite podcasts it seems like a lot of them started out as like all men. But over the years, more women have come on and been added to the fold. Um, mm -hmm. Like in particular, The Losers Club. It's a Stephen King podcast that I listen to. And I'm pretty sure at first it was like five guys. And now they have a rotation, maybe half a dozen women that are on there. Uh, my favorite one, her name is Jen. Jen Adams is I think her name. And uh, she does Losers Club, and she also does a podcast called Psychoanalysis, where they talk mm. about, like, horror from a mental health perspective, which oh, is kind of cool. That is interesting. Yeah, you should check it out. But um, but I feel like Andrea and Alex on Faculty of Horror were the, the first, like, female podcast that I listened to. And they've been doing it for a long time. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I feel like they kind of, like, staked the claim in that area, and now, you know, 
women are kind of popping up everywhere. Hello, here we are. <laughs> here we are. Yeah. So podcasters and also I think directors in general, I think we're going to keep seeing more uh, female directors and writers and producers and people behind the scenes because I've just kind of casually noticed watching TV shows, movies, whatever, it'll be over and, you know, you'll have your your uh, your credits and I'm like, oh, it's directed by a woman, written by a woman. So I've just started noticing more of that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so I think we're just going to keep seeing more of that. And that's that's what we want. Yeah, I feel like it's a great time to be a female horror fan. Mm-hmm. Uh, like the history of horror is not bereft of female icons as we've been talking about. I mean, we can go centuries back and find female icons, but mm-hmm. there's so few and far between up until like recent decades. And I think even just like right now is really like a moment and a turning point as women are sort of like demanding to be heard in these spaces more. And so I think the future is very bright as, as you, as you so eloquently put it before. So I, I think that hopefully within our lifetimes, we, we come to a point where like, it's not a surprise or it's not notable particularly to see the, the final credits roll and see that the director or the screenwriter or the executive producer uh, was a woman. I, I want that to be so ubiquitous that it's like not remarkable anymore. I was going to make the exact same point. That is exactly right. Nail on the head. I am the writing on the walls. Well, that's it. That's our list. So uh, I just want to say thanks again, Jacqueline, for joining me today. So just once again, um, remind the people where they can find you and maybe give us a little sneak peek of like what's coming up on A Cut Above. Sure. Yeah. So the podcast that I co-host is called A Cut Above Horror Review. You can find us pretty much on any podcast platform. And we will also be acknowledging Women in Horror Month during the next four episodes, um, four, four weekly episodes. So you may see some of the things that we've been talking about today and on on that podcast as well and get into some like deeper deeper dives on on some of these films and some of these women that we've been talking about. Um, and I just want to thank you for having me on the show. It was so much fun getting prepared for this and rewatching some things and rereading some things that I hadn't touched on in a long time and, and getting to talk about this with you. Yeah, we'll uh, we'll definitely have to do it again. For sure. <laughs> so as always, listeners, I want to encourage you to show support for the things that you love that are created by women. Um, It seems like the majority of prominent creators are men, but once you really start paying attention, I think you'll be surprised at how many of your favorites exist because of the influence of women. Um, Case in point, when I was doing research for this episode, I stumbled across an article that listed, uh, it was like four forgotten women in horror. And um, there's this woman, her name is Ida Lupino. She was a director. She was the first woman to direct a Twilight Zone episode. Which episode did she direct? The Mask, which is my favorite Twilight Zone episode. (laughs) So, you know, you find these little pockets now and then when you're just, when you're paying attention. So uh, be sure to check out the show notes for the things we mentioned, as well as just more interesting tidbits about women in horror. Because as I said, we have merely scratched the surface. There is much more to know. There are more opinions to hear. Um, So until next time, 
I will leave you with some relevant words written by Mary Shelley in 1816. Beware, I am fearless and therefore powerful. in. You can find the show on Instagram and Facebook at Light and Shadow Pod. Sign up to become a supporter on Patreon for early access to all episodes and more. Please rate, review, and subscribe to help other people find the show. Until next time, stay spooky.